<clears throat> and I don't know who is responsible for getting a whiteboard here, but if you would, I'd appreciate that. <clears throat> oh, Lord, within my soul, I long for purity to be complete and whole alone through thee. There is no other hope, there is no other plea, salvation full, salvation free, must come alone through thee. Now you may be asked sometime, why is Jesus the only way? Muslims, Jews, various religions say, you people make the gospel exclusive, that's very offensive. Why is Jesus the only way? Well, the answer to that is, Jesus is the only person who ever came into this world to take away our sins. And it's our sins that stand between us and God. All the other religions of the world have lawgivers, and they give some good laws, but they do nothing about the sins we've already committed. They do nothing about us keeping that record clean, so there's never any sin between us and God. And so, if you're ever asked, why is Christianity the only way? Why is the gospel the only way? Well, it's the only, it's the only proposal, it was the only thing that was ever done to take away the sin that stands between us and God. Everybody else gave laws, but they, they didn't deal with the problem. Uh, they leave you to pull yourself up by your bootstraps and obey these laws and hope for the best. At the end, maybe the, your obedience uh, to the laws outweigh your sins or something. But Jesus came away to do a marvelous thing. Those who surrender their life to him and give him total control of their life, he takes away the record they've already accumulated, and he gives them the power to keep that record clean. That's unique to the gospel, and that's why this is saying there is no other hope. There is no other plea. Salvation full, salvation free comes only through Jesus. The only one that ever proposed such a thing and did anything about it, okay? I bend before thy cross, and know thy heart can be cleansed from its sin and dross alone through thee. There is no other hope, there is no other plea, salvation full, salvation free must come alone through thee. My faith thy word believes, the promise made to me, and perfect peace receives alone through thee. There is no other hope, there is no other plea, salvation full, salvation free must come alone through thee. And now let us say our memory. And seeing the multitudes, he went up into a mountain, and when he was set, his disciples came unto him, and he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are the mourn, for they shall be comforted. I was trying. That's, that's it for today. I was trying to think what I was going to assign you next, and that's, I messed up. So anyway, let's do verse, <clears throat> down through verse 7 tomorrow. Okay. I think most of you are ready to say the whole thing, and that's tremendous. I, <clears throat> I want to call your attention to the fact that Jesus did something different here 
than what he did in all of his other teaching. All of his other teaching he taught while he was walking and, and doing various things. He gave these teachings. But this was a situation where he left the multitude where he did all that ministering and all that teaching, by the way. And he went up into a mountain, called his disciples unto him, the ones who were going to lay the foundation for the church, and he delivered to them this manifesto, this uh, <clears throat> Magna Carta of the kingdom. And it says he sat and taught them. And I told you yesterday that when a leader sat, then's when he was giving his most authoritative, his most uh, uh, important uh, laws and teachings. So this sets this passage apart from all other teaching of Jesus. All of it is authoritative. All of it is, is important. But this, he sort of did something here to show that this is a very special, central part of, of what he wants the church to be built upon. And if you go down through history, you will find that all the groups that ever took the gospel seriously and really set out to be Christ-like, they landed on this passage. And they often were called Sermon on the Mount people. So that's why I love to preach from these message, this passage, because this does sort of encapsulate what it's all about in, in a very wonderful way. And uh, so I, I just want to put in a plea for the fact that the Sermon on the Mount had some special significance because Jesus sat and gave it. He didn't just walk by the way and teach. And that was important, too, and authoritative. I'm not minimizing that. But his sitting to teach this gave it a special infor- importance and official uh, foundation upon which the church was to be built. <clears throat> now, there are many things in this sermon I'd love to say to you, and I'll say as many as I can. I was very torn this morning to preach on anger and lust, which when I talk to people on the telephone, they agree with me that if you could solve those two problems, probably society would immediately be what it should be. And those two problems, Jesus says, have to be conquered. And I want to remind you that God never tells us to do something that he will not enable us to do. And to say, well, I just, you know, I was born, my father had a temper, and, you know, it's just, no, 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 no. Just quit making excuses. If Jesus asks us to do it, he will give us the power to do it. Like Dale Heisey always likes to say, in every command, there's a promise. The promise is, if God commands it, he will give the grace to make it happen. Okay. But we must come to him aware that we can't. But we can make decisions. We can make decisions as to whether we're going to move forward in obedience. And then God looks down and says, his eyes run to and fro throughout the whole world. And he sees somebody who's going to do something that he wants them to do. And then he says, I'm going to give them all of heaven's resources to make sure that's a success. You follow what I'm saying? God never gives heaven's resources to people who want to do things he doesn't want to have done. (laughs) Does that make sense? That's pretty merciless logic. (laughs) But once he sees somebody moving, but they have to make the decision to begin to move. And then they say, God, I'm going to move here. But if you don't give me your resources, it's going to be a total failure. It's going to fall flat on his face. I'm totally dependent on you to make this a reality. But he makes us Make the decision. Remember the cross with the little circle where we have to make these decisions every day to take Christ's way? When he sees somebody moving in that direction, he says, I want that to succeed. And he gives us all of heaven's resources. And I'll talk about that sometime later. Well, I decided, as much as I'd like to talk about anger and lust this morning, uh, I have five messages, so I tried to concentrate on what I thought you needed to hear most. So, If you'll turn to Matthew chapter 6, we're going to skip around through this sermon and pick out some things. 
The title of this message is Keeping First Things First, and we want to talk about fasting and economics. Michael Hillis was a 29-year-old pilot for American Eagle Airlines. At the controls of Flight 3379, as it descended toward the airport in Raleigh, North Carolina, two miles, four minutes from the airport, a light in the panel lit up. It was the light that said one of the engines had failed. And immediately, he and the co-pilot got busy trying to figure out which engine it was. And they were so concentrated on trying to figure out which engine had quit, they forgot to fly the plane until 1,400 feet from the ground, the plane began to drop rapidly because they weren't paying attention to the engine that was working. And uh, it was too late then for them to correct their course. They they all of a sudden realized what was happening and they crashed into a woods and uh, 15 of the 20 people aboard died, including the pilot and the co-pilot. But as they were searching through the rubble, they discovered that neither engine had quit. It was the pilot light that went bad. Now, what do we learn from this? There's a human tendency to focus on the immediate situation and to forget life's real purpose. There's a real tendency to focus on the panel light and forget about the important engines and tend to them. Too many are like McDonald's founder, Ray Kroc. When he was asked by a reporter what he believed in, he said, I believe in God my family, and McDonald's. But when I get to the office, I reverse the order of importance. We all say we believe in God. We all say this is, this is the order. But if we're not careful, we get the order reversed, and God gets last. All right, so I have two points this morning. The one is securing perpetual reality, making sure we keep our focus right. Jesus gave us a discipline to make sure that could happen. And then the second message, will, the second part of this will be seeking permanent riches. Which things are the most important? You know, life is a matter of priorities. Uh, Brother uh, uh, Allen referred to it yesterday. Worship, or, or no, I guess it was Brother Mickey last night. Worship is worship. It has to do with what is most important to you. I, the, I think one of the weaknesses of our Mennonite teachings as I was growing up and as even I listen today all the emphasis gets put on morals. Now, don't misunderstand me. Christians are moral people. They don't lie. They don't steal. They don't fornicate. They don't uh, kill. They don't, they don't do any of those immoral things. I don't want you to leave here saying that there should be less emphasis on those. There should be a lot of emphasis on those. But after we have dealt with our morals, we still have not dealt with the thing that is probably most important to God, and that is what are our values. Now we're talking about what is most important. They might be good things like Ray Kroc had here, all of them important, but we have them in the wrong order. We don't have the number one right. And you worship the thing that is number one on your list because worship is worthship. Which of those things are worth the most to you? We're talking now about values. And I would like to hear more preaching on values because the emphasis this morning is going to be on values. And uh, it's interesting to me, you go to chapter 11 of Ephesians, of, of Hebrews, that great faith chapter. Now we're going to talk about faith. And there's not a word said in that whole passage about the people's morals. In fact, some of those people had real moral failures. That whole chapter is about their values. And here's the greatest value statement anybody ever made. 
Moses considered the reproach of Christ something nobody would ever want in the flesh. He considered the reproach of Christ to have more value than the treasures of Egypt. He left, walked away and left them all behind to identify himself with a suffering nation, a persecuted nation. That is a tremendous value statement because Egypt had many treasures, many things that you would have wanted. But he walked away from it all. And it's interesting to me, that's the faith chapter. Oh, so faith has a lot to do with values, not only with morals. You haven't really become a person of faith till you got your values straight. Because values, values are things that are important and they are the things that are not seen. Which all those people in that chapter saw. And that's why they're called great men of faith. Because they kept their focus on that unseen reality that's going to be there when everything else has passed away. They never lost that focus. Abraham sought for a city that had foundations whose builder and maker was God. He never saw that city. He had never owned more than a burial plot in the land. So I'm challenging you this morning. You say to yourself, how can I decide what my values are? Well, I can give you an easy way. Go talk to your parents. Go talk to your brothers and sisters. Go talk to all your close friends. Go talk to the people you work with and say, what pushes my button? What subject can somebody bring up that gets me all excited, more excited than anything else? Is it fishing? Is it the car you own? Is it how much money you earn? Is it the vacation you're planning? What do they hear you talk about and get the most excited about? Have you ever been in a group where people were talking about spiritual things and somebody was sitting off in a corner and they weren't saying anything? And after a bit, somebody said hunting. Woo! That person became alive and you found out he did have a tongue, actually, and lots of stories to tell and lots of enthusiasm and a lot of passion. Hunting was his God. That's what he's worshiping. Now, he'll tell you he's worshiping Jesus. He will tell you that God is the most important thing in his life. But like, like Ray Kroc, he's really be worshiping hunting. What is it with you? If I were to ask your friends, what get, because your, your number one passion, the thing gets you most excited, that's what you're really worshiping because that gives away your values. If I were to ask people, what gets so-and-so the most, what could I just, uh, say to him that would really turn him on and get him talking and really excited and passionate? I think your number one passion is related to your number one value. And that's why, to me, passion is extremely important. I don't believe in anybody talking about anything unless I see some passion. If there's no passion there, I say, oh, it's an intellectual thing with them. I mean, all these college people write all these wonderful books about anabaptism and so on and so forth. But look at their life. You don't see any passion. It's all an intellectual thing. Something they have in their head. Well, my, I could talk a long time about that, but we'll move on. <clears throat> So we want to talk about securing perpetual reality. Now, the human instinct is to seek reality by focusing on material, tangible things. That's our human tendency, to focus on the tangible, to focus on the things that appeal to our senses. A bigger house, a better car, new living room furniture, more exotic food. This is the pursuit of most people. The tendency is to indulge the flesh in a search for satisfaction. But I want to tell you something. That is an elusive pursuit. It will always be out there. The best example I can give is my first stereo. Now, you people can go to Walmart now, and for $45, you can buy a better stereo than what we could buy for hundreds of dollars when I was growing up. They didn't have this cheap Japanese, Chinese electronics. 
you had to pay good money to get a good sound. And I remember walking into the living room of a friend of mine, and they had a, an expensive stereo. They had just the right big speakers, woofer speakers, and they had a powerful... Uh, you had to buy these components. They had a powerful amplifier. They had the best turntable. And anyway, and I remember I, he put a record on and played it. They were records in my day, by the way. He put a record on and played it, and I thought I had died and gone to heaven. I had never heard anything like that. And guess what? I'm going to have me a stereo. But I was a poor school teacher. So I scrimped and I scrimped and I scrimped, and I was able finally to buy a pretty decent amplifier, not as good as his, for the amount I had to pay, had to give. And I finally got myself a turntable, and I finally got myself speakers. And I remember distinctly, after I hooked it all up and put on the first record, ah. But you know, after two weeks, I was dreaming about a better one. The dream is always better than the actuality. That's, that's, the, that's the elusive thing about this. So you go to a restaurant, you eat exotic food, and you eat there a few times, and after a bit, ah, let's try this restaurant. Maybe they'll have something that stimulates my taste and does something, yeah, I'll get more excitement out of their food. And then it's the next restaurant. And you talk to people that know every restaurant in town, and they can tell you the quality of all of them. <laughs> and they run through the whole list. <laughs> that's the way this pursuit is. That's the way it is. And Jesus teaches the exact opposite. He says that fasting is the solution to this problem. I call it the constant reset. You know what a reset is. You reset things. So you went down this road a little bit, but if you don't have a reset to set it back where it should be, it'll just keep on going. So Jesus gave us a reset. It's fasting. Instead of going to that next most exotic restaurant, try this. Don't eat anything for three days. And guess what? Potatoes will taste fabulous with no salt and no butter. How many know what I'm talking about? That's the reset. And Jesus assumed we would all use this reset. He didn't say if you fast. He said when you fast. We constantly, and, and the reset only is not only in food, it's in all other areas where we discipline ourselves to take a step back and do a reset and take less. And then what happens is our sensitivities increase. I remember one time I fasted for a week with a group of faculty people. A faculty, we were having a problem in the school, and we decided to do a fast for a week. I never, I'll be honest with you, I've never done a week fast since, but I don't know why I don't. Because I remember at the end of that week, all I wanted to do was sing and pray. My spiritual sensitivities were heightened to the degree that I put my physical in the background. See, we're not doing this to impress God necessarily. He knew we needed this reset for ourselves. We need to constantly pull ourselves away from the material and do a reset. Remember the word reset when you think of fasting. That's what it is. It's a reset because God knew that our sensitivities become great, uh, jaded as we indulge them. And so he says, no, no, do a reset. Say no, 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 and get yourself back here where you enjoy potatoes with no butter and no salt. And then you can work up from there. And then after a bit, you better do a reset again. Am I making any sense? <laughs> this is the great reset. It's probably one of the most powerful things that Jesus had to say 
If we really are interested in developing our sensitivity and relationship to God and obedience and understanding of, of what he wants, he knows we need this because we go and jade our senses with the material, with the, the cars and the furniture and the food and you name it. And I look throughout our own people's lives and I see this. And I don't say much because I'm usually a visitor in the home, so I don't usually say much. But I look and I say, wait a minute here. These people really need a reset. They really do need a reset. So, when the body is disciplined, the mental and spiritual forces are intensified and become very alert. And that's true in the physical, it's true in the spirit. All of our sensitivities, spiritually and physically, are heightened by this discipline of fasting, this great reset. So what do we want God to see? He, he's watching this. And so let's learn a few things about fasting. What, what, are, what, do, what does God see when he sees people do this? Not that we're impressing him, but his eyes do run to and fro to see what's happening and what, what he can give his heavenly support to. What's, what's he see? Well, in the Old Testament, fasting was a sign of repentance. It was a sign of repentance. It was an acknowledgement that we have indulged the flesh and we're we're ready to deal with that. And God loves to see that. He loves to see that repentance uh, where we do this reset and say, wait a minute, we went too far, we're repenting, and we're going to move back. Okay? He loves to see that. To the Jews, now, let me say this. Of course, they can become legalistic. Everybody's so afraid of legalism. Did you ever hear the false dichotomy? It's either faith or it's works. You can't have both. It's either a a good church or evangelism. If you do evangelism, you'll become worldly. And I could list a whole list of them. And people are always saying, you got to have this or this. You can't. No, you can have both. All of these things that people have made false dichotomies of actually are very powerful if they're kept together. Of course, you can go off and fast and think you're impressing God and make a sad face and all this stuff Jesus warns against. Of course, you can do that. But that's not to say you shouldn't do any fasting. You follow what I'm saying? Don't let people put a false dichotomy on you. There's nothing wrong with church standards. They go very well with faith and accountability for some practical expression of your faith. But you can go off on either side. And then people do that. They go off on this side and they become legalistic and they go off on this side and become worldly. Keep them together, okay? Remember, the false dichotomy. Don't be tricked by false dichotomies. All right, well, here we go. The sign of repentance. The day of atonement required a compulsory fast where people showed their penitence. Samuel made the people fast after they followed Baal. Israelites fasted after that horrible massacre of the Benjamites in the book of Judges. Nehemiah made his people fast for their sins. God does see this reset, and he takes it seriously if people are are genuine. Jewish literature gives this, uh, uh, these are uh, sort of legendary stories, that Reuben fasted for seven years for helping to sell Jacob into slavery. And during those seven years, he took no wine, no liquor, or no appetizing food. Now, this is Jewish legend. This isn't from the Bible, but Jewish legend has this. That Simeon fasted for two years for hating Joseph. That Judah fasted for the rest of his life for his sin with Tamar. 
No wine, no meat, and no pleasure. This is in Jewish literature. So fasting, God sees this reset, and he takes that very seriously. And he blesses it as a sign of true repentance. When you think repentance, think reset. That's another way of saying repentance, okay? Then it also is an invitation to revelation. Lord, I'm opening myself. I'm saying no to all of this. I'm opening myself to the spiritual world. I want you to speak to me. In Exodus 24, 15, Moses fasted for 40 days on Mount Sinai. In Daniel 9, 3, Daniel fasted, waiting on, the word, uh, on a word from the Lord about the, the captivity and when they should go back. As the flesh is disciplined, the spiritual senses are strengthened, and grace flows freely. Okay? So, I'm not standing, I'm a little bit like Mickey. Here I'm saying all this wonderful stuff, and I'm sure you think, oh, he probably fasts regularly, he does this. No, 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 I'm sorry, this is a tremendous struggle for me. All you have to do is look at my waist. So anyway, but I encourage you to learn this discipline and to learn it now. And to not let yourself go, but so far, till you do the reset. And just keep doing it. All your life, make sure you do this reset and don't keep going. Okay? Here are some benefits from fasting. It's good for your health. The medical profession will tell you that. It enhances sensitivity, enjoyment of common things. I told you that. Number three, it preserves our ability to do without. And that's an ability we need to learn. To be content with what we have. To say, no, I don't need that. There was a Quaker one time that saw a wealthy family move in next to him. And he, they, he said to them, now you'll probably come to the place where you think you need something. When that happens, come to me, and I'll teach you how to do without it. Fewer essentials give you more freedom, spiritually, financially, in every way. Learning to say no gives you more freedom. It helps us focus on permanent reality. Pleasures are fleeting. They have to be indulged more and more because we lose our sensitivity and it has to be a stronger. Joe Rudolph lived out near Gatlinburg where they have all this entertainment. And he told me that they told every two years those places have to come up with something more exciting because people are tired of. And so they have exotic stuff. I mean, you can sit in a chair and it's like a slingshot that shoots you out and then you come back and do. they have all kinds of crazy stuff there to give you sensation. Well, my sensitivities are such, I don't think I would survive a a Ferris wheel ride. I think I'd be screaming the whole way. I just really don't need that. This is more exciting to me than any any roller coaster ride. (laughs) Pleasures are like poppy spread. You seize the flower, its bloom is shed. You grab the flower and you ruin it. Or like the snow falls in the river, one moment white, then melted forever. That's pleasure. Don't be deceived by pleasure. Practice the reset. Like the songwriter says, I thank thee more than all our joy is touched with pain. That shadows fall on brightest hours. That thorns remain. By the way, that woman died when she's 39 and she never had a painless day in her life. She suffered all her life. And this is what she's writing about her pain. I thank thee more than all our joys are touched with pain. That shadows fall on brightest hours, that thorns remain. Why? So that earth's bliss may be our guide and not our chain. 
That is a powerful statement. By the way, there's no gospel song that says anything like that. So I had to get that in there. Our truest satisfaction is when we put first things first. Melt Rude worked for years in Spokane as a car salesman. He was a good car salesman. He sold lots of cars. He also was very active in the Union Gospel Mission, working with juveniles who had problems. Week by week, he patiently taught them from the Word of God. And he went and prayed and played with these young men to help them. One week, he went into the hospital for exploratory surgery. And the doctors found he was full of cancer. They sewed him up and sent him home. He was dead within a week. Somebody observed this. It's interesting that at Melt's funeral, not one word was said about how many cars he sold. There's the reality. Don't forget that. So now, that's seeking permanent reality. Let's talk about seeking permanent riches with the time we have left. Chapter 6, verses 19 through 34. Unfortunately, this passage is not taught very much at all. We like to go to the parable of the talents and give ourselves a good biblical rationale for the American dream. Not this passage. So we want to talk about it. I want you to notice something. Chapter 5 is about kingdom morals. Chapter 6 is about kingdom piety. It's about the spiritual. It talks about almsgiving. It talks about prayer. It talks about uh, fasting, which we just talked about. Then it talks about economics. And I want you to notice that this economic thing is in the context not of morals, but of piety. What you do with your money is very much a part of your piety toward God. Because of where it's placed here, that's very obvious. And it's the longest discussion in the whole Sermon on the Mount. In fact, Jesus said more about this subject than he said about any other subject except the kingdom of God. He said far more about economics than he said about prayer. And and that's important, and I'm going to talk about prayer in one of these sessions. But he said far more about economics. Almost one half of his parables are about stuff. And he had lots of specific teaching. And I'm sorry, it does not get taught the way it should. And when I was a boy growing up, the only thing that I ever heard was, oh, we're too materialistic, and a preacher would wring his hands, and then he'd go on and talk about something else without any solution to the problem. But Jesus is very, very categorical here. Somebody has said one-third of the New Testament, in one way or the other, has something to do with money. More than, it has more to say about treasure than about any other subject except the kingdom of God. Now, Jesus is uncompromising here. He says you cannot, not that you should not, or you're not likely to. He says you cannot serve God and mammon. When somebody asks me what is the most important issue facing the church, I say materialism. Jesus said that. He said you have to choose because whatever you worship, whatever's number one in your list, that will you serve. That's what he said to the devil. He said thou shalt worship the Lord thy God only and, and him only shalt thou serve. So whatever you, that number one thing is on your list, that's what you're serving. That's why this is so important. You cannot serve God and mammon. You must make a choice between these two. Otherwise you will practice heathenomics. Because the Bible says here, after all these things do the Gentiles seek. Do you know there are only two times Jesus ever spoke specifically about nonconformity? Here's one of them. 
After all these things did the Gentiles seek, but you're to seek something else. The other one was the Gentiles in their concept of leadership lorded over people, but you do it by serving. And the Mennonite church has talked about nonconformity in almost every other way except those two areas. Now, what they said was probably good, but they will not address these two areas. They've often had very authoritarian leadership, and they've often let their people run rampant with their materialism. And yet Jesus, the only two times he ever said anything, the world's going to do this, and you're supposed to do this, is about economics and about leadership. I'll leave that for you to think about. If that's the only two times he made that dichotomy, then we have to assume that those are the two things in his mind that were the most important in terms of what we project as as a matter of separation. Jesus takes a different approach here with money than he does with anything else in the Sermon on the Mount. In the other aspects of the Sermon on the Mount, he just simply gives commands. Let your light shine. I say unto you, love your enemies. Turn the other cheek. Give to him that asketh thee. Be, be perfect. Let not thy left hand know what thy right hand doeth. Pray to the Father which is in secret, who is in secret. Use not vain repetition. Just commands. No explanation. Just short commands. But here, he gives some explanation. He explains why he said what he said. Because I think he knew that we had to have our imagination stimulated on this one. We had to be able to think about all kinds of ramifications. And so he adds wisdom sayings. He tells us the reasons why he said what he said. In addition to commanding the will, he wants to awaken our insight to see deeply into the reason why this is so important. We need more than commands. We need to have our perspective broadened, our imagination stimulated, new levels of understanding if we're ever going to obey these, these very practical commands about wealth. This scripture does not lay out specific rules, but it gives three general commands and then one summary command. Here are the two, three general commands. Don't lay up for yourself treasures on earth. Lay up for yourself. See, Jesus is all about accumulation, but make sure you lay it up at the right place. Lay up for yourself treasures in heaven. That's the second command. And the third one is don't take any anxious thought about tomorrow. And the summary command is seek ye first the kingdom of God. So those, that's the outline for this passage. So let's talk about the first command. Do not lay up for your, or the first two commands. We'll sort of work these two together. Do not lay up for yourself treasures upon earth, but lay up for yourself treasures in heaven. Now, he says, if you lay up for yourself treasures on earth, moth and rust are going to be your enemies. I think I see a little bit of sarcasm here. Do I want to make myself vulnerable to that little insect? That that little insect can destroy my life? Or that rust? Do I want to make myself vulnerable to rust? My, oh, my, I want, to, I want a more worthy enemy than that. And by the way, in James he says, if I see any rust on your stuff, that rust will testify against you. Rust happens to things that are not used, things that are accumulating on a pile somewhere. We're not talking about working capital. You might have a garage, and you might have $200,000 worth of equipment in that garage to do the work that you need to do. That's being used. That doesn't get any rust on it. But it's that stuff that gets rust on it. It's that pile of clothes that can be eaten by moths. It's that stuff that you really don't need, that you're piling up for some reason that you shouldn't be piling it up. That's the stuff that Jesus is concerned about. Okay? Covetousness. The Bible says that 
the world looking on should never once be able to say there's a covetous person in the congregation. Hmm. If it's fornication, we will make sure that the world never sees us approve of it. If somebody would bow down to some idols, unless it's their car maybe, I tell some boys you should just go out and kiss the fender every day and kneel down and pray to it, and that's the way you're treating your automobile. We wouldn't let real idolatry where people are praying to images. That wouldn't be named once in the church, and it would be dealt with. But what about covetousness? What is covetousness? It literally means the desire for more. John D. Rockefeller was asked, the wealthiest man of his generation, how much money do you need? And his answer was, just a little more. See, it's a game you play. You get involved in this game. It's so much fun to see how big you can make this pile. That's covetousness. That's covetousness. It's a little bit like Monopoly, though. My children will tell you, I do not enjoy playing Monopoly. Because you have this sense that you really are winning lots of stuff and you have all this property, and then it all has to go back in the box. I can't get excited about that at all. But this stuff that you have is all going to go back in the box. Every bit of it. You will take nothing with you. Now, wait a minute. I had an Uncle John in Philadelphia, in Wilmington, Delaware, and we went to visit him one time, and he hauled us all around in his Lincoln Continental, and we did all kinds of luxurious things that we never did because that's how he was entertaining us. And then he looked at me. Everybody in my family knows I'm queer on this subject. Uh, <laughs> I drove a Honda one time in to visit my grandmother, and all my uncles came in with their big new model Buicks and whatever. And one of my uncles walked in, and before he saw who was there, he said, Who in the world drove that piece of junk into the driveway? And then he looked around the car. Oh, I might have known it was Johnny. And so that's my reputation among my family. But anyway, my Uncle John said, Johnny, you might as well enjoy it because you can't take it with you. How many believe that's a true statement? That is not a true statement. You can take every penny of it with you, but you've got to send it ahead. You can't take it with you when you die, but you can have it all safely treasured there while you live. And I said that to Uncle John. I said, Uncle John, you have a misconception here. You can take all of this with you, but you've got to do it now. So, Jesus did not say it was wrong to lay up treasure. That passion to accumulate is a God-given passion. He said, just make sure you lay it up at the right place. So how do we write out heavenly deposit tickets? That's pretty important to know. To whom did Jesus say, sell that you have and give alms? Somebody tell me an answer there. Come on. You know, what? Yes, he did say it to him. But some people think he said it only to him. And then they think, well, he had a special problem, which I don't have, so I don't have to pay any attention to that. Now, wait a minute. Would you turn with me to Luke chapter 12? Verse 32. Now, he's not speaking to the rich young ruler here. He's speaking to his disciples, including us. And he says, fear not, little flock. For it is your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. 
Now, he said essentially the same thing here as he said to the rich young ruler. Sell that you have, give, your, give alms, provide yourselves bags which wax not old, a treasure in the heaven that faileth not, where no thief approacheth, neither moth corrupteth. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. So he says, he says that to all of us. It wasn't just a rich young ruler. He says this to all of us. Cast thy bread upon the waters, and thou wilt find it after many days. Okay? Jesus leaves us no alternative but to give. In fact, I want you to see my favorite promise in the whole Bible, and most people who've heard me speak know what it is. It's 2 Corinthians 9, 8. I want you to turn there. I want you to see what it says. <clears throat> 2 Corinthians 9, 8. Now you hear me quote verse 8, but now I want to read verses 6 and 7. This whole chapter is about giving, by the way. But this I say unto you, he that which soweth sparingly shall reap also sparingly. And he's talking about giving. And he which soweth bountifully shall reap also bountifully. Every man according as he hath purposed in his heart, let him give, so let him give, not grudgingly or of necessity, for God loveth a cheerful giver. And then it says this, if you are a lavish giver, God then is a lavish giver of his grace. So he makes a dispensation of dispersion of his grace dependent on how generous you were. You get as much grace as what you showed by your liberality. The verse, my God shall supply all your need according to his riches in glory is also in the context of giving. And so God looks at your giving, and I'm going to show you a parable in just a moment. And he says, on the base, I'm watching their money. In, in God's mind, that money has no value. The only value it has is for him to see what you do with it, so then he can decide whether he's going to give you something that really has worth. The Bible clearly teaches this. God's watching what you do with your money. To him, it's relatively unimportant what, what your money is really worth. But to him, it's very important what you do with it because it's a test. In fact, it's going to be the final test. When we get to the judgment, it's not going to be, he's not going to say, were you born again? Did you do all these things those preachers said spiritual people do? He's not going to say any of that. He's going to say, did you give to the needy? Did you feed the hungry? Did you look on the people who needed your resources? What did you do with it? That's going to be the final judgment. What about being born again? What he's saying is, if you didn't do that, you never were born again. That's what he's saying. Because I want to tell you what happens when you're born again. Zacchaeus one time sat down with Jesus, and they had a long talk. And it said at the end, Zacchaeus, oh, half of my goods I give to the poor, and I'm going to pay everybody back four times. And Jesus said, this day salvation has come to this house. John the Baptist was asked one time, well, you're telling us you will not baptize us unless we repent? Well, what are you looking for, John? If you have two coats, give one away. If you have extra food, do likewise. Oh, did you ever hear a message on repentance that gave that as the evidence? That's what John said. Because Christians are in a, one category. There are two categories of people. They're the givers and they're the takers. There's the accumulators and the generous liberal givers. And all of the Christians are in the giver category. Because what Christianity is, it puts self on the cross. And it starts to disperse. Before you're a Christian, it's gimme, 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 gimme. Everything. 
pleasures, money, whatever. I, you don't want it for me. But me goes on the cross. And the practical evidence immediately is it all starts going the other way. How much can I help? How much can I give? How much can I disperse? How much can I lay up treasure in heaven? It all goes the other way. And if it doesn't go the other way, I think the Bible clearly teaches you have no claim whatsoever to any kind of a change, any kind of a new birth. Any evidence itself is on the cross. Self is still accumulating. Self is still looking out for number one. This is a very important teaching. According to this teaching, I really wonder how many people are really Christians. How many people are going to come to the judgment and the Lord's going to say, you went and spent your extra money on that. And I told you clearly not to do that. I told you clearly not to accumulate for yourself. And you paid no attention. Now, non-Christians sometimes can do this. So there are some non-Christians that are in the giver category, but there are no Christians in the taker category. I'm firmly convinced of that, that there are no Christians in the accumulating category. I mean, non-Christians can do pretty well. Schindler, you've heard of Schindler's List? I never watched the movie, but they say that at the end, after the liberation of the concentration camps, Schindler sat down and cried. He said, I could have done more. Now, wait a minute. This man delivered at least a 1,000, if not more, people from the Nazis. But he sat down and he cried. He said, there's my car. If I had sold my car, I could have rescued 10 more Jews. If I had sold this, I could have rescued so many more. And that's how he felt at the end. So he was a non-Christian. In fact, I want you to turn to, first, to Luke chapter 6. I'm teaching this because I don't want you fellows at the beginning of your life to start down this accumulating path. Accumulating for yourself. I want you to get accumulations at the right place. Verse 32 of chapter 6. Now when I taught Sunday school in the conference church we used to be part of, if they asked me to choose my class, I always chose the elderly men. And the reason I did is because most of their peers were dead, and they've gotten to the place where they didn't care what anybody thought, and they said exactly what they thought. They told it like it was, and I always enjoyed that. And I'm going to tell you what happened in one of our Sunday school classes. I read this passage, and some man blurted something out, and I'm going to tell you what he blurted and where he blurted it. All right. Verse 32. For if you love them which love you, what thank have you? Go look up the word thank. It's the word charis. It's the word Grace. Or you could say, what Christianity does this person have? For sinners can do that. Schindler can do that. And if you do good to them which do good to you, what Christianity have you? Sinners can do that. You're not proving that you have anything more than sinners have. And if you lend to them of whom you hope to receive, what Christianity have you? For sinners lend to sinners... To receive as much again with no interest. And we think we've really done something heroic if we learn loan money without interest. Oh my dear, we're great Christians. We loaned our money without interest. Sinners can do that. That's what he's saying. Sinners can lend just to get the principal back. Not even talking about interest. But love ye your enemies and do good. And lend hoping for nothing again. And here's where the older, older brother blurted out. He said, well, that isn't lending, that's giving. And I threw back my head and laughed. I said, that's the point. Christians don't lend, they give. They put their bread upon the waters and they let it go. 
Maybe it'll come back. Maybe it won't. And then there's no strings attached. There's no bad attitude because this person didn't pay the stuff back because you, you didn't expect that in the first place. You just, that man has a need, give it to him. Now, if it's capital investment, we can talk about that. He's going to build, build up his business and, and so on. He's going to use your money, and maybe he should pay some uh, interest for the use of it for what he did with it. But if it's a genuinely poor person, you certainly never charge interest because sinners can do that. Sinners can loan just to get the principal back. That's, that's, you haven't proven a thing about the grace of God when you do that. But lend, hoping for nothing again, and your reward shall be great. And ye shall be the children of the highest. You are a true Christian. For he is kind unto the unthankful and to the evil who never pay him back anything. Be ye therefore merciful as your father also is merciful. That's a powerful scripture. But that dear brother, he had it right. That's not lending. That's giving. Let's turn to Luke chapter 16. I'll tell you how I came to these convictions. I grew up in the typical Mennonite community where they talked about stewardship. And when I listened to it, now I look back and I would say all I had to say when they were done with that wonderful talk on stewardship was, is that what Jesus said? And the answer is no. That isn't what he said. That you should invest money and build up more and more equity so you have more and more to give to the church and the church needs big donors and blah, blah, blah. I heard all that growing up. Jesus said nothing of the sort. Luke 16. This is my favorite parable. And he said unto his disciples, there was a certain rich man which had a steward. And the same, now a steward is someone who takes care of somebody else's stuff. And he was accused that he had wasted his goods. He had selfishly somehow used his master's goods for his own benefit. And the master called to him and said unto him, How is it, it that I hear this of thee? Give an anth account of thy stewardship, for thou mayest no longer be steward. You're going to be fired. Then the steward said within himself, What shall I do? For my Lord taketh away from me the stewardship. I'm just about to lose my lucrative job. I cannot dig. I think you could say he was lazy. And to beg, I am ashamed. Of course, he was proud. But I know what I'm going to do. So, if I do what I'm planning to do, I'll have people take care of me whenever I'm fired. So, this is what he did. Verse 5. So, he called every one of his Lord's debtors unto him and said unto the first, How much owest thou unto my Lord? And he said, A hundred measures of one. He said, Take your bill and sit down quickly and write fifty. So he's still doing it. He's still wasting his Lord's stuff for his own benefit. Let's keep going. And uh, then he said to another, verse 7, And how much owest thou? And he said, A hundred measures of wheat. And he said, Take your bill and write four score. So he's giving him 20 measures of wheat. What in the world is his Lord going to say? Isn't he going to be furious? Uh Uh-uh. Look what he says. And the Lord commended him. Now, this isn't Jesus. This is his master. Commended him. Because he had done wisely. For the children of this world are in their generation wiser than the children of light. Men of the world know that if you do good to a bunch of people, you have a bunch of IOUs coming back to you. The politicians know that for sure. They have masters that say, you be a good steward. Don't you give my stuff away. 
We have a master that says, give your stuff away, and we are too dumb to see the wisdom that the world sees in giving stuff away to benefit. Am I making sense? He says, the world is smarter than you are. You have a master that says, give the stuff, and you hang on to it. They have a master that says, don't give it, and they give it because they're looking for a benefit. And you people aren't smart enough to see that it's all to your benefit to do what Jesus said. That's what he's saying here. And then he says some other powerful things. Let's keep reading. And I say unto you, here's his command. Make to yourselves friends of the mammon of unrighteousness, that when ye fail, they may receive you into everlasting habitations. I will let Brother Allen explain the theology there. I'm not quite sure what he's saying. But he say, he basically what he's saying is, if you do what I say, it will be to your benefit, somehow, somewhere, okay? Now, here's the real teaching. He that is faithful in that which is least is faithful also in much. And he that is unjust, unjust in the least is unjust also in much. If therefore ye have not been faithful in the unrighteous mammon which the Lord says disperse, Who will commit to your trust the true riches? Well, that makes sense. If you don't even know how to deal with this worthless stuff, what would you ever do if God gave you something of value? And that's exactly what he's looking at. What's he doing with this stuff? Then I'll decide whether to give him something of true value. My illustration here is John Wesley. John Wesley wrote about 200 books. Some of them were small books, but he wrote about 200 books in his lifetime. And somebody has figured out that he made in today's money about $140,000 a year. Now, that's not a lot of money, but it's a lot more money than I make. He took for himself a salary of $14,000, and the rest he gave away. And I thank God for all the disagreement I have with John Wesley, Infant Baptism, Church of England, probably not requiring non-resistance and all of that. We have some real differences with John Wesley. But I think God looked at this one characteristic and said, here's a man that I can entrust with true riches. And he just poured it out. John Wesley said, if I die with more than 10 pounds in my possession, and 10 pounds is worth a lot more back then than it is now, you can say I was a hypocrite. Somebody has said when John Wesley died, he left a battered hat, a shabby coat, a tattered Bible, and the Methodist church. That's the legacy I want to leave. But it all depends on what I do with my stuff. I hope you're getting the point. Okay? And then he goes on to say this. And the Pharisees also, which were covetous, heard all these things and they derided him. And I guarantee you, that's, you're going to get some of that. If you try to teach this, you're going to get from good, hard-headed, economically oriented, plain people, you're going to get some real feedback. At least I did for the last 40 years. And he said unto them, ye are they which justify yourselves before men. You can come up with logical arguments and you can actually get scriptures to support it. You can make a good argument and justify yourself before men. But God knows why you're accumulating this stuff for yourself. For that which is highly esteemed among men is abomination to God. Verse 16. The law and the prophets were until John. Since that time the kingdom of God is preached and every man presseth into it. 
Now, you can take two meanings here. They force themselves into it and held on to their stuff and say, we're going to be part of the kingdom and we're going to keep our stuff. Or they press into it by getting rid of the stuff, accepting a tremendous discipline to get into the kingdom. And I'm not sure which one it means here. I think both of those things happen. That's my favorite parable. People strive to get into the kingdom their own way. We see it all the time. We must take drastic action to get into the kingdom. Very clear. There's no hint in chapter 16. If you keep turnover, we have another example. We have a rich man and Lazarus. And we're not going to read the account because we're going to be out of time. But there's no hint that that rich man was not a perfect Jew according to what people were looking at. There's no hint it was immoral. There's no hint he broke any mosaic, mosaic laws. There was only one reason why he ended up where he was. Son, in your lifetime you had your good things. And there was a man that you knew had his evil things. And you kept your stuff. Now there was a day before the internet that we did not know the needs of our world like we know now. But there is no excuse. It's all there for us to see. What are we doing? And God is watching. And he's saying, I'm going to respond to these people on the basis I'm watching, particularly, I'm not particularly even watching their morals. I mean, God doesn't ignore that either. But I'm particularly focused on their values, whether they're men of faith, whether they believe what I said, whether they demonstrate with their stuff that they believe in that unseen world. And this seen world is only a means to an end. I'm watching. That's what God is saying to us here in this parable. All right. Where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. Don't read that backwards. Don't say where your heart is, that's where your treasure is. That's what we hear. Nope. Show me your stuff that you don't need, and your heart is there regardless of what you say. I always like to tell the story of my uncle. Uh, I was driving an old 20-year-old Pontiac that the wood grain was peeling off. There was a little bit of rust on it, but that car never owed me a penny. I mean, I I bought the car for, I think, $500 and ran it without much service for about 150,000 miles. And then finally it went to the junkyard like all my stuff finally does. And by the way, when you buy your new car and drive it out of the the, uh, uh, showroom, Francis Schaefer said every young man, the first thing he should do is drive that car to the nearest junkyard and say, here's where it ends. I watch these trucks going down the road with these cars that are smashed back on top of each other and say to myself, somebody drove every one of those cars out of a showroom brand new and thought they had the world by the tail. And there's where it ends. Ash heap lives is what Francis Schaeffer called it. Anyway. Oh, my uncle. (laughs) So I drove into the graveyard, beside the graveyard, the old church where I used to go, and he still went there. He's not living anymore. And the first thing he said to me was, Johnny. They all call me Johnny. I guess you see I had bought a new Ford truck. And yeah, it was sitting right in front of me. And I said, yeah, I saw that. Well, it doesn't mean anything to me. It's just transportation. Really? And I guess you heard I bought a new Cadillac. Yes, I heard that. He drove his old car, which was only one year old, into the car dealer. And they told him he had a headlight out. And he said, well, I'll just take care of that. And he bought a new Cadillac. But anyway, I'd heard that story too. And he said, "Uh, that car doesn't mean anything to me either. It's just transportation. I hadn't said anything to him about his stuff. Why is he saying this to me? Because he actually believed what he had been taught, that if your heart isn't in it, then it isn't treasure. What a lie. Jesus did not say that. 
He said, show me your Cadillac. Show me your new Ford truck. Show me all this other stuff that you have extravagantly wasted your money on instead of meeting the needs of our world. And I'll tell you, that's where your heart is, regardless of what you think. Well, <clears throat> oh, we, we have 10 minutes. Now let's get to the insights. The first insight, let's go back to Matthew chapter 6. You're not to lay up treasures on earth because where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. Your treasure is where you have focused your time, your passion, and your interest. The number one value in your life. That's why that pile is there. The law is that your heart will follow your treasure. If you want your heart to be on heavenly things, then send your treasure there. And that's where your heart will go. To change your heart, change your treasure. Invest lavishly in some ministry somewhere. And guess what people are going to hear you talk about? They're going to hear you talk about that ministry. Because that's what happens. Where we put our time, where we put our energy, where we make our deposit, that's where our heart goes. It's just a law. So if you want to change your heart, change your treasure. Change it to this unseen world. Change it to ministry. Change it to all these things that are important uh, according to the gospel. And your heart will just automatically go there. I mean, that's just the law. Okay? Insight number two. The light of the body is the eye. The single eye focuses only on one thing. The double eye tries to serve God and mammon. And he calls that an evil eye. If you go to the Old Testament, it said that if you have a brother who's in need and you don't sell him, you don't uh, give him money for his land because it's near the year of Jubilee and you know you're going to have to give it back so you don't want to waste your money on that, that's an evil eye. You shut up your heart from your brother, that is an evil eye. That's one of the things. Proverbs 28.22 says, He that hasteth to be rich hath an evil eye. He's going to take advantage. Okay? Proverbs 22.9, He that hath a bountiful eye shall be blessed. That's what it says. God is able to make all grace abound toward him. 2 Peter 1.9 says, Blind people cannot see afar off. See, it's more dangerous <clears throat> to not be able to see afar off than it is to be completely blind. If I was driving down the road and I became completely blind, I'd try to edge myself over to the shoulder and stop. But if all of a sudden something happened and the ditch looked like the road and the road looked like the ditch... That would be very dangerous. And blind people cannot see afar off. They're stuck on this temporary stuff, and they cannot see afar off into the future spiritually. And I wonder so many times if that's not what happens in our churches, why we have so many problems. People don't have eyes to see because they're trying to be double-minded. Okay? Susceptibility to get rich schemes. I'm amazed at this. Mena Haven, which is the big retirement community in our church, not in our church, the Mennonite church in general. And that's where all the wealthy people go in our community. One year, somebody came along with a Ponzi scheme, and if you invest your money with us, we can pay you more interest than anybody else, and they invested $2 million and lost every dollar of it. Why? They were hasting to be rich. Trickling Springs, which was a a, a big business uh, selling uh, uh, Milk and uh, organic products went bankrupt because they tried to get rich. Failure to obey Christ about wealth forces us to prescribe all kinds of stuff that we probably wouldn't have to prescribe. What kind of car do you think a boy would drive if he gave away all his extra wealth 
and bought a car that met his needs, but it, he spent the least he had to spend on it. What kind of car would he buy? When you're down there in the car lot, do you let Christ interrupt the way? You cannot serve God and mammon. Whatever you treasure, you in fact are worshiping. You are worth shipping it. And whatever you worship, you will serve. Jesus said that. You cannot serve two contradictory masters at the same time. One says accumulate wealth. The other one says distribute it. (laughs) You can't do both. Well, some people think they can. They have lots and lots of wealth, so they give a bunch of it away, and they think they're doing both, but they're still accumulating. Jesus gave a parable on that. He said there was a rich bunch of people who put money in the treasury. Here comes this woman who didn't have anything, and she put all her living in. She didn't even know what she was going to eat the next day. And he said, that woman gave more than all the rest. Mm. So he's not looking at how much you gave. He's looking at how much you kept. That's how he measures your gift, whether there's any sacrifice on it at all. One says, money, houses, lands, clothes, power have intrinsic worth. The other says, these have worth only as they are used as a means to the kingdom. One says a big salary, savings, insurance, increasing capital have a high rating. The other says lavish generosity, unselfishness, love, and humility have the highest rating. You cannot serve both, but we must choose. We cannot serve both. So then we come to the, third, the summary command, or the third command. Take no thought for your life what you shall eat or what you shall drink, or yet for your body what you shall put on. So the question is, how are we going to meet our practical needs? With these idealistic commands. Well it's interesting. (laughs) Jesus seems to think it's pretty obvious. That that's not going to be a problem. When we read what I'm going to read to you next. It's almost as if. He's saying don't you people get it. This is not a problem. Now I'm not saying you should quit working. The Bible says we're to work with our hands. But it's interesting the goal. So you have to give. To pay your bills and then have money to give. That should be your, your goal should be to have as much to give as you possibly can and keep as little as you need to for your own needs. That's the goal. So let's quickly go down through this. He says, therefore, I say unto you, take no thought for your life, no anxious thought. Don't worry about this. What you shall eat or what you shall drink, nor yet for your body, what you shall put on is not the life more than meat and the body than raiment. God's, Jesus said, is it obvious to you? God created your life, and I'm a copy editor of medical journals. I'm here to tell you that there are millions of miracles going on in your body at this moment. This is a marvelous creation. But it needs beans to keep it going. Now, how many think that it would be harder for God to make beans than it would be for him to make your body? Raise your hand. That's what Jesus is saying. Isn't the life more than what it takes to keep it going? If God made this body, then you're going to say, oh, I'm not sure he can keep it alive. I'm not sure he knows how to grow beans. Number two. He says in verse 26, behold the fowls of the air, for they sow not, neither do they reap, nor gather into barns, yet your heavenly Father feedeth them. Are you not much better than they? Now, birds fly around, and they do absolutely nothing to get ready for uh, what's coming. They just sing and feed their babies. And Now, if you're going to talk about ants, it's interesting. He didn't use ants, did he? <laughs> or squirrels or whatever. But I do ask you this question. Yes, they're laying up. But where is their life here on this earth? Where is your life? There. So they're doing what Jesus said. They're laying up for the future, but their future is here. But he chose birds. 
Birds don't do anything to provide for their needs, and yet your father takes very good care of them right up to the last. And by the way, it's going to be the last for us anyway someday. And God takes care of these birds right up to the last. And he says, we're better than they are. They have no logic. We have enough logic to go and work and earn some income and, and all that. So it should be much easier for God to, deal, to make, meet our needs because we can cooperatively help uh, to earn the, the money that we need. Number six, uh, number three, verse 27. Which of you, by taking thought, can add one cubit to your stature? Now, there's some here that are very tall and some here are very short, and I'm sure some of you wishes you were a little taller or a little shorter. I have an assignment for you. Go home this evening, measure yourself, put a mark on the wall, and then go and stand in front of a mirror and worry, worry about your height for 10 solid minutes. Worry as hard as you know how to worry, and then you go back and measure yourself again and see if it helped. So what he's saying is, if you can play a part... In meeting your needs, fine. But don't try to conquer the inevitable. If it's inevitable, you can trust God. All right? Worry will not help. I told you, Jesus is registering almost pain that he has to say this. I mean, this, he's telling you what you should see every day. Number four, verse 28. He says... And why take you thought for raiment? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow, they toil not, neither do they spin. And yet I say unto you that Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. And yet, someday, they will be cut down, left to dry, and cast into the oven to make bread. But God takes care of them right up until it's cut. He doesn't say, when I'm going to go out to mow my lawn two days ahead of time, well, I'm going to cut off the supply to that grass. John's going to cut it in two days anyway, so there's no point in me. No, no, no. God takes care of it up to them, everything it needs, right up to the moment it's cut. And that's what he's saying. God will take care of your needs right up to the moment that life ends. That's a promise. Now, you're going to be working. Don't misunderstand me. Nobody ever heard me say you should sit on a porch in a rocking chair and say, oh, I'm seeking first the kingdom. And so it's all. No, 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 no. You're not seeking the kingdom. You're still seeking yourself. Okay, number five. Verse 33. Seek ye first the kingdom of God and all his righteousness, and all these things shall be added unto you. Oh. Most of the people in our society want a government job. Why? Governments take good care of their employees. They give the best pay. They give the best benefits. They give the best retirement. And everybody wants to work for the government. Do you think God takes less care of the people who work for his government? Really? Really? You think God takes less care for the citizens of his kingdom who are working for his government than the United States government takes care of its, its employees? Come on. Seek ye first the kingdom of God and you are a valued part of that kingdom and your needs will be met. Number six. But take no thought for tomorrow, for tomorrow will take care of the things of itself. It's like the manna, remember? They weren't supposed to worry about the next day. They were given sustenance for that day. And we pray, give us this day our daily bread. Now that's not saying that we shouldn't can for the winter. I don't have any problem with people getting things together for what is probably pretty well known you're going to need. But for the future, suppose I have cancer. Suppose I can't work. 
way out there somewhere. Uh Uh-uh. There's a parable about that, too. There was a certain man whose land brought forth lots of things, and he said, I'll tell you what I'm going to do. I'm going to build bigger barns, and then I'm going to sit down, and I'm going to build a retirement house on the corner of the farm, and I'm going to build a little shop, and I'm going to putter around there, and I'm just going to enjoy all the money I laid. Or maybe I'll go to Florida and play shuffleboard and do fishing. I'll have all this stuff. And he said, you fool. Today your soul shall be required of you, and then who's going to do, who's going to, what's this going to, Who's going to use this stuff? The problem with planning for the distant future is you don't know how much you're going to need. In fact, I know some older people that say, well, I'm not sure how long I'm going to live. When should I start dipping into my, resource, my, my accumulation? I hear them say that. They don't know how much they're going to need. And he said, you're a fool. You'll probably die and leave a bunch of it that you could have transferred to heaven before you died. Our Father wants us to accumulate many evidences of his supernatural provisions. Hath not God chosen the poor of this world rich in faith? George Mueller, why? He was poor, but he gave to those orphans, and he was rich in faith. He said at the end of his life he could trust God just as much for 10,000 pounds as he could have originally trusted him for a shilling. Why? Because he tested it over and over again, and his faith kept growing. The poor develop a tremendous faith because they see God... Providing, They have a good Ebenezer. Hitherto hath the Lord helped us time after time after. People ask me, why do you have such a strong faith? I say, because I look back over my life and I see things that happened that could have no other explanation than God. And God wants us to lay up that kind of an Ebenezer with our stuff to see how God provides. I taught school and we had no money, but during that time, we had almost no illness. We had almost no illness. And God met our needs in many ways. uh, Harold Martin, who was an old man in our community, was a mechanic, had 13 children. He told me at the end of his life, he said, John, I used to go down to my little shop and I worried, oh, dude, somebody had a hospital bill. How would I ever pay it? He said, I look back now and God met all of our needs and all of that worry was totally wasted. I'm over time. Just give me a, uh, a final here. Seek ye first the kingdom of God. And all these things shall be added unto you. Elijah and the widow of Zarephath who gave him her last food. The widow's offering that I've already told you about. These are promises. Now you're going to work. You're going to be disciplined. Now you hear me teach that too. But you're not going to accumulate wealth for yourself. It'll, it'll testify against you. If there's any rust on your stuff, if it's accumulated stuff that you didn't need, it'll have rust on it, and it will testify against you. By the way, rust is slow oxidation, and the people who do that get the fast oxidation, which you call fire. Okay? I conclude with a story I love to tell, and you've heard me tell it, of the poor couple. This is a true story. Who went to Africa and worked in a faith mission where they had nobody supporting them. For many years, they served there. They came back when they were old, in their 80s. They came back on the same ship that Teddy Roosevelt came back on. He had gone on a safari. He came home with a bunch of trophies. And they got to San Francisco. Teddy Roosevelt goes off the ship, and the whole crowd follows him to a ticker tape parade down through San Francisco. And the old couple sitting on the, standing on the deck by themselves. They were on the mission field so long, nobody even remembered that they existed. And there was nobody there to welcome them. And the old man looked at his wife and rather bitterly said, Honey, this isn't fair. Look what he did and look what he gets. Look what we did and look what we get. And she said, honey, we are not home yet. 
He said we will have an abundant entrance into the kingdom of God. I guarantee you, if you live what we taught this morning, when you get to that place, what you experience there is going to far outweigh any ticker tape parade anybody ever saw or experienced. God bless you. Shall we pray? Father, we thank you today for this opportunity to look into your word. And Father, you're, not cate- you're very categorical about this. There's no, there's no squeezing uh, between the lines. You're very clear that we are to lay up treasure in heaven by not accumulating here and by sending it on by our lavish generosity to the needs around us. And Lord, I pray that nobody here will come to the judgment and hear you say, you didn't feed the hungry, you didn't clothe the naked, depart from me, ye that are lawless. Oh God, help each of these people here in their youth to determine to pursue the course that you clearly describe with their possessions. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.